Hello and welcome to Warwick's Classics and Discussion podcast. Now sex. Sex, sex, sex. Where were we? This is a memorable line from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Sex produced us, it surrounds us, lures us, tempts us, it intrigues and entertains us, yet also bashes and disconcerts us. Few topics have enthralled and enticed scholars more than sex but few subjects are also seen with more suspicion and reservation. Think of the public schoolmaster played by John Cleves in the sketch just mentioned. He has to teach sex to a class of bored boys. He makes a mockery of the whole thing because his dry detachment and scientific descriptions clash with the content of such a hot and emotional subject. Sexuality as well as sex and gender are now firmly part of academic discourses in the humanities. Classics in particular has a lot to contribute since so many things sexual seem to originate in Greco-Roman antiquity. After all, lesbian love, homosexuality and the Oedipus complex all go back to parts of the Greek past. And sex is a Latin word. But how did the Greeks conceive of love, lust and sexual longings? Did homosexuality play a prominent part in classical societies? And how did Greek ideas about sex and gender impact on modern times? With me to discuss the fascinating story of Greek love are two of my colleagues, James Davidson and Dan Orrells. Uh, James, um, when we talk about um, sexuality in the ancient world, uh, one wonders whether this is really like a topic uh, one needs to do research about. I mean, does, does sex really matter? There are various different answers to that that people have given. Um, one is that the history of the ancient world, the sexuali sexuality of the ancient world, historically has had um, an important influence on the development of modern ideas about sexuality. Um, a second one, a second opinion, is what we might call the anthropological position, that is very interesting to see something which has no relevance to the way we think about sexuality today, that it's very important to look at something which is so different that it, it questions our whole ideas about what sexuality can be, what nature is, what human sexuality, if, if we can generalize about human sexuality. Um, for me, I have to say that I think the most important thing is that sexuality is just a part of the history of a long ago people. And it's interesting in itself to study this aspect of the civilization this aspect of their culture, um, I don't think it really needs a justification in terms of modern terms, in terms of either influence, mm. evolution or contrast. So basically what you're saying is uh, Greek sexuality sh partly shaped the modern world, uh, partly it is interesting to study because it's so different from, from what we're doing nowadays and partly doesn't, uh, doesn't need a justification. Is this uh, roughly, uh, um, is this a good summary of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, mm. I would say most important for me is the study of ancient sexuality as a as a important um, structural element, an important central element in ancient civilization, and that anybody who's interested in the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans as a whole has necessarily to be interested in this particular aspect of their culture, love, sexuality, which has... Um, you know, which is involved, which is um, embedded in so many other aspects of their culture, even battles, wars, politics, medicine, mm. um, all kinds of things. Mm. 
Um, then uh, if I can ask uh, you, um, what did they do? I mean, like there are a lot of words, you know, like um, let's say lesbians comes from the island of lesbos, homosexuality is a Greek word. It seems that a lot of our talk about sexuality is Greek derived. So what did the Greeks do? I mean, how, how did they, uh, I mean, how did they perceive uh, sexuality? What, what, what happened? Well, I suppose on one level you can say, what do they do in bed or in the kitchen on the kitchen table <laughs> might be quite similar to what people do now. Right. But the way they conceptualize those acts would be very different. So, so what's what's different about it? Well, um, for instance, who uh, what was considered licit or illicit in the ancient world? So what be, you w were supposed to do and what you weren't. Yeah, exactly. To do. So, for instance, in the ancient Greek world and to a certain extent in the Roman world. It was perfectly uh, acceptable, it seems, in some uh, Greek cities for an adult male to have uh, some sort of sexual relations with a, another male who might have been a lot younger than him. Or That's like Socrates, mm -hmm. uh, kind of having a toy boy, is that yeah, right? Yeah, uh, it's that sort, of, that sort of idea, yeah. And the, the kind of idealistic spin on that relationship was that mm. this pederastic relationship was meant to be a kind of an institutional sort of relationship uh, in which uh, the older man uh, uh, entranced the younger the younger man into uh, into an adult world. So by entrance means he introduced... Uh, mm, a social, it was meant to be a... Well, an idealistic reading of this would be that it was a socialising uh -huh. uh, uh, institution. So basically for men, uh, they, had, uh, they, they liked or loved other men. And women kind of were there for procreation, but otherwise didn't play much of a role with that? Yes, and um, there's a famous categorization in um, the speech against Naira, the courtesan Naira, um, which was probably by a guy called Apollodorus, in which he divides women into three categories, um, concubines, um, wives, and pornai, in fact. Mm. Whores. I've forgotten, yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe edit this bit carefully. <laughs> but I mean, this has been a kind of a uh, this sort of stratification of women in Greek society has been a bit has been a become a uh, locus classicus or a classic place for scholars, uh, historians to s say. Well, there are three types of women in Greek society: with a wife, you're a you're a kind of well dressed, well heeled uh, sex worker, or you're a more sort of you know rather not so well. You yeah. work in a brothel kind of thing. Yeah. And that's what constituted femininity in the classical Greek so, scholars. So basically, uh, um, but I mean, like, there's erotic poetry in Greek, isn't there? Like, even for women, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. did they did they look at women and found them attractive? Or? Yeah, sure. So that view mm. is only, it's, it appears in a law court speech. So mm. it's a piece of uh, forensic or law court rhetoric. So it's not going to be the truth in a, with a capital mm. T. So you're right to say there's erotic poetry written between women, so Sappho is the most famous example, Arina, yeah. another example. Mm. Good, so um, obviously... I, I would like, to, I would like sure. to say that this is, this is giving the wrong impression, um, that for a man to go and write love poetry to the daughter of a citizen in Athens, or let alone you know, his sister, or you know, God forbid his wife, that puts her in a very dangerous position. So if you get mm -hmm. a troubadour outside someone's house singing love songs so that one of the women inside, that marks her out immediately as a courtesan. Oh, one see. of the marks of a courtesan is that they have people coming to their house. Yeah. Um, so 
So I, if I, I think the old cliche about, about women in Athens especially, and I think that probably applies to most cities in ancient Greece in the classical period, is that they were, you know, they were not supposed to be seen, they were not supposed to be talked about, they were certainly not supposed to be the subject of graffiti, uh, admiring graffiti, admiring love songs, um, receivers of gifts. So mm. I think in that sense, love does not exist with decent women. Yeah, I, I know that you once compared, <coughs> um, uh, James, you once compared uh, uh, classical Greece to modern Saudi Arabia or something like that. The, the seclusion of women and uh, women are not uh, supposed to be seen in public and then there were the funerals which uh, offered one of the few uh, uh, possibilities to maybe meet somebody, is that right? Uh, Yes, I got, I got into trouble for that because a lot of, um, of people who, who think that they are in support of women think that to represent ancient Greek women as, you know, like modern Eastern women, you know, this whole Orientalist construct is going to, you know, is denigrating ancient Greek civilization and they want nice models of um, Western women, you know, which they can mm. derive from the ancient world, um, especially in regards to the church where you can have women being involved, being independent, being... Um, I mean, like the church, the Christian church. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they especially like the idea, you know, they, there was lots of evidence for priestesses, for instance, having more of a public role than yeah. other women, and they very much want to see that as a, a model. Well, if we come back to sex, I mean, obviously everything immediately... Um, Everybody immediately thinks of a Lysistrata, for instance. These women up in the Acropolis withholding sex. Uh, and I remember this scene, the Spartan men come you know, like with their you know, like erect penises. Uh, and uh, the Spartan women have done the same thing. They have withheld their sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I wasn't there, but I did read the play. And it, I, I like it very much. Uh, but anyhow, this was obviously also for women like a model of uh, liberation. Is this what was going on? How did the... Did women use sexuality as a means to impose uh, order or uh, get to political participation? Uh, I mean, Dan, maybe, or anybody? Um, I think the idea that, you, that you can utilize your sexuality as a tool for political emancipation or liberation is a very modern idea. And it's a, mm. a very modern idea. So what, what's happening then with Aristophanes? That's like 430s or something like that, B.C.? Why does he write this play? Why do you? Well, some women? people would think maybe some people would think it. You know, Aristophanes was a proto-feminist. <laughs> you know, in the ancient world, sort of, sort of uh, getting Athenian the male audience to think, rethink what their wives are doing when they're not at home, kind of thing. But on another level, and it, you know, just as much a traditional reading uh, is that uh, Aristotle's sorry, Aristophanes is just making fun of uh, uh, male anxiety about uh, about their wives he's kind of you know he's enjoying you know uh, getting getting men worried about <laughs> what's going on in their own personal backyards so so basically he's suggesting uh, if you don't take better care of your women and keep them under lock and key yeah. this could happen mm -hmm. i think it's it's i suspect it's more addressed to men than it is to women. <laughs> yeah. There were only men in the audience. Yeah, of course, exactly. So. Yeah. yeah, I see. Well, that's again is debated. Well, that's oh, right, yeah, that's debated. I mean, I, we don't know whether wives were there, but I suppose there must have been prostitutes in the audience. So, not even no. prostitutes. I think we would. I think we would know if there were. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. If so, but I mean, in any <laughs> case, um, even uh, the 
the people who played the women were men, right? They did a little yeah. bit of cross dressing. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. And the speaking part. Some people have suggested that non-speaking parts could be played by mm. women. Yeah. By women. Mm. But I, th I think what's interesting about Lysistrata, well, I think there are two things interesting about Lysistrata. One is that um, women, even in that play, are represented as um, sexually out of control. And so it takes a massive effort of will for them to give up sex for their husband. It's like this great, great sacrifice. <laughs> so that's a big joke. Um, and secondly, that it, uh, it kind of... Take me, take me! <laughs> oh, no! In that respect, it kind of reverses the normal sexual role. So you yes. have the men mm. as rampant mm. and, you know, completely dominated yeah, by yeah. their sexuality. And the women are the ones who are self-controlled like men. So yeah. that, that's one interesting thing. The other, the other interesting thing is that I do think that there's a subtext which we haven't quite got to the bottom of. I mean, people have noticed that um, the priestess of um, Athena Polias in Athens was called Lysimache at the time. Right. And without any shadow of a doubt, there are women in her family, which is the most noble family ever known in, in ancient Greece, um, the Etiobutidae. There are women in her family who are called Lysistrata. And it seems impossible that Aristophanes isn't <coughs> making some reference to that family, to her cousin, mm. her sister, whatever. Mm. But that specific reference is lost. Mm. I think it's astonishing yeah. when you read the play in that context, but I don't really think there's a way of escaping yeah. from that. Context. I mean, isn't the, aren't the women complaining, the sisters and followers complaining about the amount of wars they're fighting? Which is a consistent theme in Aristophanes. Exactly. So Aristophanes yeah. is in favour of yeah. the women's mm. position. And yes. I, I mean, I don't know exactly. And I mean, Lysistrata, the name, means loose, loose, luo means to un, unbind, loosen. And strata is from the word stratos, yeah. army, that sort of idea. Yeah, sort of like the, the army dissolver or something uh, like yeah, that. Exactly. Right? And, yeah, exactly. And Lysimache would be hmm. a sim exactly the same etymology. Like a translation of Lysimache. So, you know, there's... Um, so but obviously in Aristophanes, uh, there are layers, which we no longer get. Some of these ancient jokes are obviously complicated, and they might have been referenced at the time. But uh, what I find amazing about this play and uh, other Greek literature is how, how much on a different level it's, it speaks to us. I mean, you know, like I still think about these Spartan men. But uh, let's <laughs> move on. Uh, speaking of Spartan men, so maybe we could uh, talk about Greek love. Uh, um, uh, James, you, you wrote this book, uh, Greek Love, and uh, one of the main arguments, as I understand it, I mean, I might misunderstand it, is uh, that there was this chap called Kenneth Dover in the 70s, and uh, he basically He's has... still alive. He's fact. still <laughs> alive and vigorous. Okay, yeah. so there's a, a, a renowned scholar and former president of Corpus Christi College, Oxford, uh, who uh, now maybe vice-chancellor of St. Andrews or something like that, who, um, who, who wrote this book about... Uh, uh, homosexuality and he broke a lot of taboos and I believe that you don't agree with his position can you just explain what's happening what he thinks and what you think and what's going on with Greek love what is Greek love um, well I, I chose the term Greek love which I think Dan will correct me comes from Simmons yes mm -hmm. yes um, and he chose it for a very specific reason. That and Simmons is uh, Simmons is a late John Addington Simmons was a late 19th century uh, Oxford classicist uh, who actually left Oxford under some disgrace because he was suspected of having some relations with a chorister. Oh, I see. So go on. So Greek love from Simmons. Uh. <laughs> uh, so he chose that term specifically to emphasise love and also, I think, for its vagueness. Mm. So I think it's vagueness, what exactly is involved, mm. is actually quite important for me as well. Um, 
And Dover, actually, in, in the beginning of his book, uh, 1978 book, does talk about what term he should have used. Um, the term he wanted to use was Greek pseudo-homosexuality, which was derived from some ethno-psychoanalytic theories <laughs> from um, Fashionable at the time. Uh, Hungarian, no, eccentric at the time and still eccentric, <laughs> um, by a guy called um, Georg. Devereux. Oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, and so the idea of that the Greeks had a pseudo-homosexuality, that it was all about behaviours and acts, and that it was a, a kind of role-playing, in fact I think almost certainly he thought it was role-playing in, in terms of power, that there was a dominant and subordinate role, and that um, it was gestural. That was his main thesis. So, so basically they didn't, really, they didn't really love uh, men, but they just played a game for the heck of it? He thought it was a very, he thought it was a great problem which really needed thinking about. And he thought that the way to source out the problem, um, to source out the differences in the sources about um, whether they're positive or negative about Greek homosexuality, about their own homosexual relations, was to distinguish between active, which was positive, manly, dominant, and passive, which was negative, feminine. And to be so one, one is the penetrator and the other is the penetrated. Yeah, and there was a complete double standard in Greek society, which is a, identical to the standard um, anthropologists claim to have discovered in, say, um, early 20th century Spain or in North Hungary. Africa or in different countries mm. or even among monkeys. Monkeys? And oh. baboons <laughs> and apes <laughs> and giraffes uh -huh. and... Other kinds of They animal. interviewed them? <laughs> they <laughs> How do they tell. know how they... They could tell <laughs> what they were thinking. Okay. <laughs> okay, but so basically, so that's... Okay, Kenneth Dover has this idea. There's an active partner, a passive partner. It's good to be active and to penetrate. It's bad to, uh, to be penetrated. So what do you think? I mean, how do you react to this well, theory? Well, no, I mean, part of it was an attempt to be... I mean, I think you're right. Yes, it was an attempt to be radical. Dover was trying to say, let's stop all this obfuscation which you get in John Addington Simmons, that the word Greek love is really trying to cover up some, I think he, you know, he calls them ugly realities. Mm. Um, and therefore you put sex at the front of the study of Greek homosexuality. Mm. You stop all the pretense, you stop all the hypocrisy, you, you translate all the terms into physical acts. Um, and therefore, you can you can make it vivid and modern. This is you know someone who's writing after the sixties revolution. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking that in fact, that although that seems like um, a modern scientific revolution, an attempt to be to get rid of Victorian repression, for instance, probably still uh, still present in seventies uh, Oxford, right? Nineteen seventies Oxford. No, Dover's book was scandalous. I remember you know even when I was a student in the nineteen eighties, people would get it out of the library um, in a slightly timid way. Really? That yeah, has changed, has it? Or? I'm not so sure about that. Mm. I think even with my book, um, you know, I've heard people saying, you know, I'm only reading it for academic purposes. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, James, please, please tell us. What, what is... I mean, so I think, so I think, you know, we need to reverse that a bit. We need to take okay. a step backwards and we need to think about it. Uh, we mustn't constantly second-guess the Greeks and think of them in terms of hypocrites or trying to hide, you know, the sexual reality, which has become so important for us, that they were, you know, they were up to something slightly different. I and mean, I did, I'm afraid there isn't a way for me to 
um, summarize summarize it in two seconds. You know, I wrote I wrote a chapter. You know, the longest chapter in my book was the conclusion, and it had to be long. But I I think basically it is an institution in Greek society. The Greeks could talk about homosexuality is an institution. Aren't these homos? There was a homosexual institution in Greek society. Um, different societies could compare and contrast homosexuality here with homosexuality 20 miles away in this country, in another state, and in, again in another state. So it was something they could look at and point to. Relentlessly, they referred to it as nomos. Now you can translate nomos as custom or law, yeah. but they also ascribed it to nomothetai, to lawgivers, ah, yeah. and they even referred to um, the verb nomothetain, to legislate. Mm. So there's the idea that this was something, a uh, hard structure, that the way you did homosexuality was according to rules which were at the heart of a particular society. And so basically that's in that the, sense... That's the key point for me. So that's, uh, that's very different then from our modern society where homosexuality m largely has been marginalized. And in Greek society, at least at certain times, it was central. I don't think there's any question about that. Okay. Great. I mean, the, w the way I tried to distinguish the two in my mm. book was to put Greek homosexuality with a capital G, a capital H. That means the formal, oh. structured I see. tradition I see. in that particular society. Yeah. And then Not to just use homosexuality like in a, a small age. Like, yes. yeah. So a we must never confuse the two because I'm sure yeah. there was lots of homosexuality in ancient Greece that did not conform to the rules and roles are listed in Plato and everywhere yeah, else. I see. Um, obviously, um, the, these Greek uh, traditions and the Greece, Greek customs also, um, you know, played a, a role in in the modern world. I mean, there's the example of Oscar Wilde, uh, who in his trial, I believe, uh, refers back to Greek love. Maybe, Dan, you can tell us a bit about what's happening there. In, in what way the, the classical Greek past was so important for the struggle of homosexuals to for freedom uh, yeah sure so you're right to say that at his trial um, Oscar Wilde was accused of being a sodomite by uh, the Marquis of Queensbury uh, now Oscar Wilde was uh, sort of had a very close relationship with the Marquis's son Alfred Douglas who was a student at Oxford and so Oscar and how old was Wilde at the time o Oscar Wilde would have been in his I don't know, 40s, yeah, at, least okay. for, at least 40, mid-40s. Mm. So a much younger boy. Yeah, sure. And uh, so Oscar Wilde brought the Marquis to court about this. Uh, the court decided, the prosecution decided that uh, there was actually quite a lot of evidence to suggest that Oscar Wilde had been behaving illegally. Um, there was a law that was put through in 1885 which criminalised... Uh, yeah, criminalised certain uh, se yeah, sexual acts between men. Sodomy was already illegal. Uh -huh. um, but uh, this 1885 law strengthened the uh, sodomy laws that already existed. And so the, uh, so the case that was then turned on its head in the second and third trials... Oscar so Wilde. when is this? Can you just eighteen ninety five? Is his trial? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it all happened very quickly within the space of uh, some weeks. Um, so at the beginning of it, he was one of the, one of the most famous writers in Britain and and America. And by the end of it, he was one of the most notorious figures. <laughs> um, uh, and this really was a kind of big case because uh, Alfred Douglas, his uh, the the guy he was having a well, he the guy who he had a long a very close relationship with his older brother was rumored to be having a uh, an affair with the, the then prime minister so, so hang on a second so there's uh, douglas's 
friend of Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. His brother has now affair. Douglas's older brother was rumoured to have be having an affair with Lord Rosebery, the Prime Minister. Right. The older brother had committed suicide beforehand. Before so, the trial. Before the trial. Well, yeah, for, I mean, they don't really know. Yeah. Oh. So, um, and there were lots of, you know, lots of, there's lots of ideas about madness mm. running in the family so, and stuff like that. So basically, so, like, the, it's, it's uh, like the high society is drawn into this trial. Mm-hmm. But how, in what way does, uh, do the Greeks come in? How, in what way is that important? Well, Oscar Wilde's uh, uh, friend, uh, Alfred Douglas, wrote a poem that was published in an Oxford undergraduate journal called the love that, uh, Two Loves, in which he describes the love that, that dare not speak its name. And uh, in this poem, uh, so, so the prosecutor, uh, the prosecuting counsel asked Wilde to explain the meaning of this term, the love that dare not speak its name. And Oscar Wilde said it's the love uh, that, uh, that Michelangelo shared uh, with his partners, that Shakespeare shared with his partners, as well as Plato. And so he, he sort of strung together the love that he shared with Alfred Douglas mm. was the one that, you know... Plato and all these other things. Exactly, yeah. Sure. So I think what that means, I mean, is that there was already um, a very ancient tradition of um, a spiritualized Greek homosexuality, which goes back to Plato, um, the Neoplatonists, um, the Renaissance Neoplatonists, like Marsilio Ficino, um, and also Michelangelo was influenced by that. So there was actually a very strong um, tradition which um, interpreted Greek homosexuality in terms of um, the soul reaching up to God, in terms of a completely mm-hmm. aphysical um, it relationship. Was even even in Arabic cultures, I think that you know Neoplatonism mm-hmm. was important oh, in, in right, Rumi and everything. Yeah. You know that there is this idea that you can talk, you can have um, poetry about boys which is in fact supposed to be poetry about God and about love in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was, so, so Wilde was kind of using that, resting mm-hmm. on that, um, completely hypocritically. What was, I mean, what's interesting about Wilde is that, especially the last, between the Renaissance and you know, the end of the 19th century, and especially in the 18th and the 19th century, this discourse that, that saw Greek homosexuality in two layers, a venereal, smutty, sexual layer, physical air versus a spiritual soulful mm. sort of uh, type of uh, Greek love uh, and this was this was a kind of a way of reading the ancient Greeks mm. that had been peddled you know mm. which was you know pretty, pretty common and uh, Oscar Wilde subscribed to this in the court case but you know the jurors didn't believe mm. him and obviously what do you mean they didn't believe him they didn't, they didn't believe that he just had a Greek love to I mean like Greek love a, a platonic affair well I they mean, can't like, have believed him because he was found guilty of gross no, indecency I mean, there, there was a story that the audience applauded yes that's oh. true after this speech the audience <coughs> did apparently applaud um, but then, but then but all the very graphic evidence from rent boys and from um, the stains on sheets in hotel rooms, this all, <laughs> this all counted against him. So, I see, I and see. we don't know the applause. The applause is a second-hand story, mm. uh, so we don't know what the, that applause means. So after once the Oscar Wilde trial uh, was over, all hell broke it was, loose. Well, for the first time, people really, really, very openly questioned this Hellenic ideal that certain classical scholars were uh, trying to uh, advertise to, you know. 
to the world in effect you know Oxford you know produced the civil servants that ran the empire and, mm. and so this this admiration of the platonic dialogues in mm. which men and, and younger men get together and discourse erotically yeah. Yeah. yes exactly the bluff became, was called became very questionable <laughs> so and the most famous example of that is in 1914 when uh, Ian Forster comes to write his novel Maurice about two young men who, lo- who apparently love each other in Cambridge significantly not Oxford and uh, they they can never quite work out what Plato Plato was talking about at his symposium because it doesn't quite match up with the way they feel now. <laughs> and Maurice, the the novel's protagonist, end, uh, ends up going off with a uh, with someone from a Scudder. completely class with a, a guy called Scudder, a working class man mm. who has nothing to do with uh, pl- platonic love. And they leave Britain and they kind of they're meant to live happily ever after. Mm. So so from the beginning of the twentieth century, Greek love. The significance of Greek oh. love because it's radically altered it's mm. in the English world, mm. English-speaking worlds. Yeah. yeah, and would you say that I mean, even nowadays, uh, debates about uh, Greek love and sexuality are important for, you know, like I mean, I, I know that Foucault, for instance, uh, tries to look at uh, structures of power and uh, imposes them on, or you know, looks at sexuality. In terms of structures, uh, structures of power. I mean, are these uh, do these uh, debates? I mean, are they still around? Uh, are they important? Uh, or I think James I, or Dan. Uh, I'll just nip in before yeah. James, as I suppose. Yeah. And I would just say that you know, the reason why I'm not going to defend Foucault, because <laughs> he's got enough defenders in the world. But I would just say that sex. Um, the reason why people do sex, or study sex. I mean, um, <laughs> by do sex, you exactly. don't mean engage in sexual intercourse. Yeah, course, I mean, so. the reason why people study sex or sexuality is it's one of the most difficult things to write about academically because how do you write about stuff that's meant to happen behind closed doors? How do you write about private lives uh, when there's often so little evidence for this? So you know, sex and knowledge. The, the knowledge about sex is a is a really good way for testing, you know, the limits of our knowledge. Mm. James, well, I th- I think Foucault really did, um, you know, demonstrate it very clearly that truths can be constructed by academics. That academics, you know, can appeal to their authority um, in particular ways. All kinds of different academics, um, clinicians or students of madness or students of sexuality, um, and they are nevertheless um, applying themselves to constructions. You know, they are appealing to constructions, the um, conception of a particular idea such as sexuality or such as um, madness really is informed by politics and by sociology. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think in a way it's demonstrated more than ever um, by the work, modern work on ancient sexuality. I think, you know, in classicists have constructed their own truth about the ancient world. Um, because, you know, classicists have a very esoteric kind of knowledge. They have to learn ancient Greek and um, other languages. They have to spend years studying it. And I think there is a group think which evolves, um, something as simple as that. Mm. But um, is it, I mean, are these debates um, still around? I mean, do feminists still look to Lysistrata or do, uh, you know, like queer freedom groups still look... uh, to Plato's Symposium or something like that. Are these uh, still models of, uh, of freedom fighters, for freedom fighters, I mean? I don't think so. I mean, what was quite interesting, what's quite interesting about Oscar Wilde is that I think in the 80s, maybe the early 90s, certain uh, queer movements would mm. tout Oscar Wilde as a, 
as a pin-up boy and a poster boy, <laughs> you know, and one academic called Alan Sinfield wrote wrote about you know a book called The Wild Century about how Oscar Wilde's become a pinup boy mm. for you know he, he he's kind of a metaphor for modern gay identity and, and then Oscar, Terry Eagleton satirized it with Saint, Saint Oscar. Exa- yeah <laughs> I mean so I mean uh, what, so what it shows is that if people have if people do see Oscar Wilde as a kind of hero they can look back to it's precisely because he because they can see through the Hellenic veil that he put up and see something else there and mm. I mean I don't know much I don't think there's much in modern gay contemporary gay uh, politicized movements that talk about um, you know aren't we aren't mm. we are okay because because the Greeks <laughs> did it kind of thing yeah. I mean apart from kind of just little magazine articles I that, see yeah. you know but there's no sort of centralized it's, it's because maybe because classical culture has um, partly at least uh, lost its uh, central place in modern society yeah, sure. so maybe it's no longer as necessary to refer to the classical we men- model yeah sure we mentioned uh, John Addington Simmons earlier who was mm. writing in the 1870s and 1880s and for him that was a real project to show that who he was at the end of the 19th mm. century was was fine it was because fine was to like be a sexual off. invert is the term he mm. would have used because you know he could justify it through reference to the ancient Greeks mm. but now that would be a an unthinkable Position, thing to do, yeah. probably because so much, uh, so much, because what what it means to be gay has changed so much mm. since the end of the nineteenth mm. century. I mean, black gay people, Latino gay mm. people, have no investment in this, or have generally have little investment mm. in this, mm. in this Hellenic history, and they will have different. You know, African American, gay African Americans, for instance, yeah. will have a very different trajectory. I see a very yeah. different way they'll historicize their identities. And the same is true of your. I don't. I don't agree with that. Mm. I think. I mean, it has had a very important influence on on um, modern gay attitudes um, or modern attitudes of the body generally. I would say. I um, suppose bodybuilding stuff. But like I did, that, yes, yeah. obviously, people are going to say I'm o- I'm okay because the Greeks are fabulous and the Greeks did this did this what I'm doing. I think the idea that there is a history is very important. The idea that there there has been, you know, that there is a history of of homosexuality, mm-hmm. that there are, you know, homosexuals in history. I think that is very important because a lot of the a lot of homophobic discourse is concerned with the triviality and transitory nature of um, one's sexuality. Either in one's own biography, you will get over it. Or in terms of history, you know, this is a very modern thing which doesn't happen in, you know, back home in Africa or back home in India. You know, this is a Western decadent thing, um, which has only recently been evolved in the decadent 20th, 20th century in places like London and New York. People really do still think that. Maybe one last, can, can we just, one last question about uh, women and all this. I mean, we have mostly talked about homosexuality. Um, I'm, I've obviously, we've, we had the the wonderful example of Lysistrater. But is there, I mean, uh, are you aware of uh, uh, female feminists? I mean, I know in the 60s and 70s, Lysistrater was kind of a figurehead. Is that still the case? Um, do you know? I, th- I think um, ancient Greece is very important for um, modern thinking about the, the place of women in in various societies. Again, you know, the history of women, women in history, women have a history, is also important in the same way. I think you could... In a slightly different way. Mm, you could flip it on its head and say, rather than 
modern feminists engaging with ancient, the, the you know the place of ancient women in ancient mm. society. Uh, you can also say that modern feminists have been very, especially French feminists, uh, which have led and American feminists have been totally preoccupied with Platonic philosophy. So people like mm. Helen Sixou, Lucie Irigaray, <laughs> Judith Butler are all very, very well-read Platonic scholars mm. and have all been very interested in unpacking Plato's dialogues to see, to question how misogynistic or how men, man-centred or androcentric they really are. Mm. So I think it's the re-readings of some of the, the canonic uh, pieces of uh, Greek literature and philosophy, re-readings by modern feminists that's uh, if we can't hear those silences of certain women, then we can reread uh, male author texts in different ways. Okay. I remember actually, to support that point, I remember going to um, a lecture by Julia Kristeva, in fact, in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she covered the board in ancient Greek with accents, which, <laughs> <laughs> which was. Yeah. I I mean, wow. Yeah, French feminists, well. French feminists are incredibly good hackers. <laughs> Yeah, well, there you see, I mean, uh, if the French feminists and the American feminists still do their accents right, then obviously Greek sexuality (laughs) must be with us and will stay with us. Thank thank you very much uh, for this discussion.